0: Sopranos Podcast. Episode 1. Nostalgia. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that, and I know. But lately, I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. That quote is by Tony Soprano in the first episode of The Sopranos, titled Simply Pilot. This episode was written and directed by series creator David Chase and that is what we are talking about today, folks, the pilot. Just, uh, I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm here with, uh, Paul Mancini And Jordan Hugh. And, uh, we're gonna be discussing the, uh, first episode, season one, episode one, of The Sopranos, the beginning of the end, uh, as, uh, as we'll come to call it. Um. The Phantom Menace. <laughs> exactly, yes. Oh, boy.
1: <laughs>
0: um. <laughs> Just uh, let's start here, guys. Just initial, just like gut initial reaction to this episode. What would you, you know, just like flying, shooting from the hip. Overall impression of the first episode of The Sopranos as a pilot and as a
1: first chapter of this 86 chapter epic. Uh, It's an incredibly rich um, story that introduces us essentially to one character. I think it introduces the other characters, but unlike other stories in which we say follow like a gang drama like at a hospital or a law office or something like that this is a story where everything threads out from the one trunk of Tony Soprano and his experience and the premise of the show best premise in the history of dramatic tv is depressed gangster and therapy that's it that's what we're dealing with I think it's a it's a
2: tremendous. Uh... monument to characterization. Really what Paul said hits it on the head. We're really just introduced to Tony, uh, his world, and how he feels about the people in his life. And everyone is only as important uh, as they are to Tony specifically in this episode. Uh, Very wisely, the episode is written and constructed in such a way that uh, Tony is basically a surrogate for the viewer. Uh, Mm. So we are really experiencing things as he would. That's not to say that other characters don't have uh, a profound life of their own. We do see that already, but really we're trying to see things from Tony's Tony's perspective. Why does he need therapy? Why uh, is he in danger? Why is there something more complicated than just the gangster we've seen so many times in so many other stories?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um You you know, what's what's interesting about this episode, I was talking with Paul a little bit before we started recording, um, is that one of the things I did when I was watching it was I kind of mapped out how many plot threads we get here. And if you look at it from one angle, it's an incredibly dense episode. There's a lot going on here. I counted seven plots in this episode, as far as, like, individual story threads that could have some payoff later. Uh, But really, it's also, at the same time, just one plot thread and that is a day in the life of Tony Soprano and and who is this guy what's he dealing with and why is he in therapy Uh, David Chase uh, quoted in an interview with Peter Bogdanovich uh, and I'm 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 paraphrasing a little bit here but the central conceit of the Sopranos is that American life has become so savage and so selfish that even a mob guy can't handle it anymore and that's I think great. With that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's that's the show in a nutshell, really, is is just that um, an Amer- a, a gangster wading his way through modern American life. And on that note, I want to ask you guys, I have I have thoughts on this. But before we really start getting into the nuts and bolts here, why do you think because when you have a gangster show, I know some people who are really into drama but may not give The Sopranos a, a chance, at least off the bat. Because it is a gangster show, so making it a gangster story uh, is a bit of a risk in some regards. Some not not so much in others, because gangster stories are very popular uh, in, with with many audiences. But some people, it's 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 like a ooh a gangster another gangster thing. So why is the story of a gangster? Why is a gangster character the best vessel for the story
1: that we're going to get in this pilot and over the next eighty six episodes? Um. I'll start off by saying that I, I've been actually just uh, reading some work by David Mamet on his own writing, and he loves writing about thieves. Um, he he sees thieves in American Buffalo. He sees thievery in the work that the guys are doing in the office in Glengarry Glen Ross. And I think that um, being outside the law and not having its various protections is immediately interesting for your characters in terms of the stakes. It's immediately interesting in terms of the characterization that is so rich in the show, as Jordan um, just pointed out. Um, For me also, I think that we've already referenced Richard II a couple of times. um, And there's that moment in the play when he says, for God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories about the death of kings and has to accept that this power that he has has become so ethereal that it really doesn't matter. And there are these moments in this show that I connect to so much where Tony is at the apex of his power as a criminal and he comes home and his kids shit on him and his wife doesn't buy his lies. And it feels so compellingly human to me that um, I do connect with it. And that's one way in which it's not like other gangster stories. It's very different. And it, it, it taps into something else that I really think is, it results in some very funny scenes for sure, and it it makes for good drama. So that's where I'm at with it.
2: Yeah, I have to really sort of weigh how heavy I want to go with the response here, because there's there's so much to unpack. You're very correct in saying it's a very dense episode, Chris. Uh, dense not just in terms of how many plots it begins, but also in the symbolic groundwork it lays for the entire series. Um, the, those chestnuts are already planted. Um, really difficult. Why a gangster story? I think the gangster story is the American story. The gangster is a, a figure who is an iconoclast. He's a, he's a rugged individual. He basically mm. has all of the traits that we value uh, from a folk hero. Um, yes. And I think the gangster has kind of supplanted the cowboy as being the de facto American hero figure. And I love Westerns, and they're still producing great Westerns, and we can have a whole chat about Deadwood as being a great show, too. But I think one of the things that make uh, Tony interesting and the people that are in his life interesting is because, as, as Paul said, they exist outside of the law, and they have to rely on their own individual power, as well as how much they can rely on one another and each other's loyalty, because there's something about them that exists outside of... Uh, mainstream society. So they are, in a way, um, an outcast community, and Tony is essentially the king of that outcast community. And um, even when he is triumphant, ultimately in the big picture, he's still the underdog. And as the viewer, you root for him regardless, because deep down as viewers, as people who are part of kind of the mainstream culture we know that there's something wrong about the mainstream culture. We know that there's something wrong about government. We know that there's something wrong about the way things are. And so we look at these outsider figures, these cowboys, these gangsters, and we say, there's something truer about the way that they are living. And because Tony, I think now, even in the first episode, is becoming aware in the same way the viewer is aware of his role in society and the pressures that are weighing on him, uh, he's losing his mind.
0: I think it's very interesting. One, one theme that kind of to your point of exactly what you're saying about Tony kind of being the, the quintessential American as a gangster and as an individual. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with the, with the cowboy comparisons, uh, in particular and gangsters kind of being an extension of the Western, uh, which is actually something the show touches upon in a a future episode or two. We'll get to that uh, at some point, but, um, One thing that really uh, when we watched uh, this episode together, guys, um, Jordan posed the question immediately upon the credits ending um, was like, what is this show about? And we really kind of had like a long conversation. And one of the things that's so haunting to me about Tony and then that really came through in this episode, thinking about that question is this idea that he is running. He is overseeing an empire that essentially creates nothing. He owns nothing. It's all kind of, it, 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 it's it's all just kind of pilfering and taking and and stealing. And uh, I, I, I can't help but think back to the uh, people who have watched The Wire. They're, one of the themes of season two of The Wire, and, and one of the uh, great Frank Sabaka quote, another great character, um, is that, you know, we used to make shit in this country, build shit. Now we just stick our hand in the next guy's pocket. And I think this message is especially potent in the scene where Tony and Meadow are sitting in the church. And he is just kind of marveling over this oh, yeah. thing that is built that is made of stones and brick and mortar and that people know how to build it. And it's just something that is so simple in its beauty, but utterly beyond Tony's comprehension. And I think there's that's a there's and, I, and it's compelling that this guy who basically makes his living kind of parasiting off of society, um, can sit and get emotional looking at, at something that's tangible and real and, and, and iron and and kind of permanent.
2: Yeah. And and that's where we start to reach for something bigger, uh, both in the series and even just in the first episode, um, where this is clearly not just a show about just one man, but you could really take the whole series, even from the jump as, uh, it, it is the moratorium on the American gangster. If if the story of the 19th century in America was the story of the cowboy and the frontiersman, the story of the 20th century was the story of of the gangster. It's undeniably his era, um, and much has been written and said about the Sopranos in terms of those. Uh, it, sorry, in in those terms, um, in many ways, Tony Soprano is is sort of the last gangster, uh, and those things that undermine him are the things that. Uh, essentially undermine the American spirit if we're looking at Tony Soprano as the quintessential American. Um, And in terms of, you know, looking at the show through like kind of that, that lens of, of nostalgia, uh, Tony is an incredibly, and I mean this in the nice way, he's an incredibly backward looking character. In that first episode, he is laying (laughs) on the doctor's table uh, having had his his panic attack, and he's he's already relating to his wife in a way that he will say many times after this. But he says, you know, we, we had some good times, we had some good years. He's trying to get her to agree with him that that they had good times together. And, and Carmel's response, of course, is, you know, oh, here he goes again with the nostalgia. Um, it, Tony Tony is seeking, you know, validation and affirmation that his life has had meaning. Because when when he looks back on his past, he wants to know he wants to hear it affirmed that what he did mattered in a way, in the same way that it mattered for those men that built the church. You know, yes. like he cites as one of the reasons why he loves his uncle is because his uncle used to take him to Yankee games. Mm. Right? Is there anything more American and more nostalgic than baseball? Right? And that reference right. is in the very first episode.
0: Right, and 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 it, that theme of. Uh tony not having the makings of a varsity athlete as as will become a big quote throughout this series (laughs) very damaging to his (laughs) self-esteem yeah yeah well but it it kind of plays into the fact that um there's something about tony's life that isn't going to plug into the american ideal he has in his head (laughs) you know what i mean it's like he's already kind of like an outsider like he, he talks in the very first minutes of the episode about how um he's in many ways better than his father but he he lives in a much bigger house than Johnny Boy Soprano ever lived in. He's doing better than his uncle Junior, um, but at the same time, like there's some kind of like pride and and you know that Ju- while Tony has hit bigger heights, Junior and Johnny Boy came up in the quote golden age of the mob, uh, and it's interesting that though they had probably less material success than Tony, they were in the better era f- as far as Tony's concerned
1: right and uh that that golden era over the course of the show will also be demythologized deconstructed as only this show with its uh wit and um and depth can do I, I i commune so much with what you guys have been saying i think that in that image of him as you both mentioned um looking at the church and what it meant and the the meaning that it gave to the lives of his ancestor his ancestry um reminds me of something else that I remember David Chase saying at some point, that essentially he thought The Sopranos was a show about people who had, quote, made a deal with the devil, end quote. And if that's a simplified, proper way of looking at it, I think it's so useful um, to look at it that way. And I would then take it one step further and say that I think just about everybody on this show wants it both ways. They want the benefits of the deal and they do not want to have to live with it. Um, They don't want to have to see um, the way in which they are parasitic. They don't want to have to see the way in which they are hypocritical. Um, One of the first set of images that we'll see in the show is coming through the Lincoln Tunnel, as I did when I was riding out here to hang out with you guys, um, (laughs) and driving through this landscape of northern New Jersey. It's not pretty. Yeah, It's industrial, it's kind of marshy, it's ugly, and then you get into some of these nice neighborhoods, but outside is the grift and the grime that pays for it. Um, well, that th- dichotomy that- will be with us throughout the entire series. So. Mm.
2: It's very important, I think, to the show that Tony Soprano is not a city gangster. He yes. is a suburban well, I mean, that's, gangster.
0: That's the central conceit of the whole opening sequence. Is it's yeah. like, this is not your New York City mob story. This is a Jersey, this is a guy from the Jersey suburbs, you know? And um, yeah, I, I I really love the poeticism of that, uh, Paul. I forget which source this was. I wish I could remember it uh, off the top of my head. But I remember reading something, it might have even just been some internet forum. I don't know. That um, one of the reasons, well, first of all, I mean, obviously the sense of place. Is so important. Like Jersey is almost a character itself in The Sopranos, you know. And David Chase was notorious for wanting to film on location as often as possible for that reason. And filming on locations a big pain in the ass. It's much easier to be able to control your environment in a studio. But it was so important to Chase that Jersey be a part of it. Um, But I I remember this is maybe this is true, maybe this isn't. But I remember an interesting theory that one of the reasons um, Tony and Carmela named their daughter Meadow. Is because the concept of a meadow is so foreign to the, uh, to the like world that they live in. It's something peaceful and pastoral, and and kind of reminiscent of the past. Um, <laughs> what, maybe what Jersey looked like before, you know, the fucking big oil tankers and 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 all the the crud of the Meadowlands kind of touched down on it. Right. That's kind of an interesting thought. Um, so. Let's talk a little bit about um, Tony as like the center orbit of this world. We have, we're have we introduced to a lot of different characters and great characters and a lot of characters that are going to be with us for a long time and some not as long. Um, but uh, we kind of have Tony as like the center and then a spinning around him we have Dr. Melfi, we have uh, Carmela, we have his nephew Christopher, we have Uncle June. Uh, and um, I, I think one of the subjects I'd like to talk about, especially with this episode, is how the Sopranos juggles the mundane with the life and death stakes of being a gangster and going back again to what we're talking about this the importance of this being a gangster story i i think it's really fascinating and and no scene in this episode to me um gets this point across of uh more than tony soprano planning a bombing at his daughter's volleyball game yeah, I mean, <laughs> and The Sopranos is rich with moments like that, where you're just in something that anyone can recognize doing the most unrecognizable thing possible. Any thoughts on this idea and, and other examples of it?
2: I had often thought how different the show would be if if Tony was not the center of the universe. What a really bizarre show we would have if Chris Moltisanti was the main character, or <laughs> yeah. uh, or Paulie Walnuts. Um, it kind of has to be Tony, and. You know, we're we're in a, a place now culturally where we're looking at the patriarchal role with extraordinary criticism, and we're looking at it very critically. And I actually, I, I think The Sopranos may have helped to launch some of that discussion in terms of how shows are written and what kind of people these shows are about. When we talk about the... Um, uh, what what do they call this role? The 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 problematic hero or the anti-hero? Um, you know, t- Tony was the, the first in in many to follow him as being um, a, a character whose whose morals were very flexible, uh, but whose beliefs were strong. Uh, yeah, that is to say, Tony has a code that is uniquely his own, and it's the code by which he lives by, and also that allows him to kind of compartmentalize his life in a way that uh, he can manage everything. And I think the stressors that um, affect Tony, even from the outset in this first episode is when those worlds are starting to press against each other because there's so much pressure in each one of them individually. What I'm saying is it kind of has to be Tony as the main character in this show. And the show really only functions because he is the protagonist. That is to say, the source of his panic attacks are not any one thing that come from his mob life, or from his home life, or from his past, or how he wants to be perceived. It has to be all of those things expanding beyond the point where he knows how to process these things anymore. So as we're introduced to each new character, and how they function as part of the machine of Tony's mind, we become interested in those people as individual components that are breaking him down. And Mm. I think that's really important and i think it creates a lot of really beautiful parallels between being, you know, offended or disrespected by someone that works for you as a member of the crew versus being uh disrespected by a member of your own family and how you need to remember to deal with those things differently and how it almost seems like tony is taken out of himself for a moment when he realizes he has to shift gears there um it's important that he is the decider. It's the important that he is the father not just of his home family, but of his uh,
1: his mob family as well. Mm. I think those points are so important about Tony as the linchpin and a person that we're following and we're tracking as he uh, struggles and tr- tries to change up his v- various... Uh, Ideas of how to handle each situation, point by point. Um, the The image of him planning the bombing with Silvio at the volleyball game is great. It's one of many, and it, not unlike Jordan uh, earlier referenced the scene with the MRI scan. Among the many ce- things that that scene is, it's very funny. Um, There are a lot of scenes like that where something is like either quirky or there's a mismatch. Mm. And I think it also brings it back to, again, something else that other shows have tried to do. I don't know that they've quite done it, where it's playful and the characters are hypocritical in wanting something both ways. Tony wants to be a dad and he wants to be respected as a gangster yeah. um, and wants to be respected and loved as a friend. He He's manipulating people from the word go in this episode. There is no romanticism about this character, who he is or how he is. I think, as Jordan says, we do like him because of what he's struggling with and because he's smart. Um, but there's no... They're not bullshitting about this guy. No. At all.
0: And, and the show... And to your point, Paul, the show is very good about... I mean, it is... It, for, for all its purpose and, and intent as a drama, it's one of the funniest shows around. Like, I, I, there's not an episode... Okay, there's maybe one episode in season six that I don't laugh through, but we'll get there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's, like, no episode of this show that doesn't have at least one very good, hearty laugh. But there's a lot. There's a lot of funny shit that goes on. Even just, like moments of hypocrisy that, that are played out kind of ironically in the, in the way that the episodes are constructed and directed. Uh, here's an example. Um, Carmella telling Meadow in the scene where, um, you know, they're, they're having their argument about whether she can go to Aspen and, um, you know, Carmella basically forbade her from going and uh, they're having an argument in Meadow's room and Carmela says, Meadow, you can't just lie and cheat and break the rules you don't like. One scene after we heard tony planning his h m o scheme it's like right. that's exactly what she is doing because that's what that's what this family does. They lie and cheat and break the rules they don't like,
1: which is what Carmela will herself deal with for the following six seasons, as will Meadow. oh yeah, so
0: well no what one rules about- what
1: values, oh right? yeah,
0: absolutely, and going back to the idea of who kind of lives off who and and what the what the uh Um, conceit is there with car I mean that's that's illustrated in in no larger sense than in the character of Carmela where she's kind of struggling with uh, how much of this is honest how much of this is not how culpable am I and uh, I think Carmela is kind of one of the most interesting characters in the show for that reason because she's not a gangster but you know just how culpable is Carmela for sure.
2: You know, and um, she's also not just hypocritical in what she says to to Meadow, but even just, even just being married to a man like Tony and benefiting from, for lack of a better term, the fruits of his labor, she's led the worst possible example to set any kind of moral standard for her children. But again, they're all struggling to find that middle place that Tony seemingly had found, just a code to live by. Mm. Yes, we lie. we cheat, we steal, but there are certain things we don't lie and cheat and steal about. Um, you know, there's uh, there's Meadow trying to figure out what her relationship is with her mother now that she knows exactly what her parents are up to. And Anthony has not yet been awakened to that yet, but he's certainly about to be. Um, mm. one of the the show's best things that it does is is kind of um give us this great commentary on parenting. Not just in Tony and Carmela parenting their children, but what we see, of course, that has happened to Tony because of, of Livia. Um And, uh, you know, it's, it's how much of the parents are present in the kids, but then also that the kids ultimately have the same struggles that the parents do in terms mm-hmm. of their relationship with the other people in their family in terms of their relationship with religion in terms of their relationship with how they treat their own friends and how they have friendships and things like that. They all kind of struggle because the the, the trunk of the family tree as Paul mentioned earlier uh, is essentially rotted. It's, it's corrupt in and of itself so a lot of their um, uh, attempts at having a normal life are kind of uh, stopped before they're started in many ways.
0: Interesting. So on this on this topic of morality, I think it's important to bring into the discussion wh- who I consider to be the moral beacon of the sh- of the character, and especially in this first season, maybe the most important character outside of Tony himself uh, is Doctor Melfi. Um, she is such a great foil for Tony, not just in the amazing and. Nuanced and beautiful performance given by Lorraine Bracco, but just as far as like Tony's ability to dialogue with what David Chase has dubbed the Greek chorus of the show, as much as there is one, um, I I I love that uh, within minutes Melfi stops him, you know, and says, "I have to lay out a few ethical ground rules," which catches Tony kind of off guard. This is not language he's used to hearing. (laughs) <laughs> uh and i just think that's such a fun moment and it's perfect and it, it embodies there's so many great examples coming up we don't have to do deep dive on this necessarily there's so many great examples in the series of melfi's moral character but i just think i i just want to take a minute to talk about therapy
1: and dr melfi and what it means to this episode and the show well for me uh just to state it briefly when i first got into the sopranos in 2000 or, or thereabouts, like you guys, I've done multiple viewings. but there's a definitely a uh, BCAD dichotomy of before and after, and that's before and after I did uh, talk therapy myself um, in an appreciation of how these scenes work.
0: They're so spot on,
1: right. The, um, the silence, the awkwardness. the way in which Tony talks to a therapist and how he what he shares, what he doesn't share, and how he obfuscates. And um, how she is able so often to see through Um, him—it's not that I didn't appreciate it before, but I think it going to doing what what's called psychodynamic therapy myself um, has so deepened my appreciation of what is done um, in these scenes. Uh, There's so much to say about it, um, but what I'll just lead with for now—we've already touched on certain relationships with women in the show that are very important. Melfi herself, Livia, Tony's mother, Carmella, and um, Meadow, among others. And the very first image of this show... I was just going to bring that up. ...is Tony in her waiting room looking at this figure um, of a woman nude that might be there because of some symbology, might be there because, as Melfi said about some of the paintings, I just like the way this looks, I saw it somewhere. But Tony is looking at it in this confused way, and again... vexed yeah this moment will guide us through all these seasons with Tony's various relationships Absolutely. with women, and I guess what you'd call what I don't know professors would call the feminine mystique or something. Um, <laughs> but but that moment guides you. It's so rich and compelling right from the get go it's it's that uh it's
2: that female affection or whatever you want to call it female love. It, it's that thing that eludes Tony for the entire series, and I think it's it's really at the core of what makes him incomplete. Um, I refer to that statue in the waiting room as, as others have. They, they just call it the goddess. Uh, some people do. I, I, oh, I think that that's pretty profound. I think Tony is uh, seeking to worship, but also seeking to be understood by the women in his life. And, and that hole was first put there, of course, by by his mother. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, that's that's already existing.
0: Let's talk a little bit. Uh, one of the funny things about the way the show was marketed, especially in the first season, is like they didn't know how to market a show like this because it was so refreshing and new. So it almost had this kind of like campy, like I watched the trailer for the first season, and it's just like it, it could have been like a new comedy directed by Billy Crystal. It really <laughs> just had like that vibe in the commercial. It was so like upbeat and weird. <laughs> and uh, the, the marketing material is like if one family doesn't kill him, the other one will. Uh, we spent a lot of time so far in the podcast talking about Tony's relationship with his immediate blood family. I would like to take a second and, and dip a little bit into the mob family and, and how that, uh, how how those dynamics are unfolding in this first episode. Uh, just a couple quick comments from me, and then I'll pass it to you guys. I I um I love especially I mean I and and again I don't want to get into spoiler territory here, but um, two of my favorite characters in the whole show are Chris Moltisanti and Uncle Junior. Um, and uh, I think we get a, a hell of an introduction to both these guys. It's a big, big episode for Chris, uh, in that he's he's doing his first kill for Tony. I mean, he's this is the moment when you're in the mob and you kind of give up a piece of your soul for for this thing of ours, as it's called. Um, and of course, Junior is just like he's a force, man. He's a force to be reckoned with. He just represents that old guard, and he's nasty and he's tough, and he's driven in toto by his insecurities. Um so I mean just any kind of comments or thoughts on the Mob family the the uh, the uh, capital F family
1: My takeaway is largely the same um in that both Chris and Uncle Junior really have a good deal of development in this one um and for now I think I would just again put a pin in some of the imagery of Chris doing the murder that he does and then looking at the various posters that are in the uh, butcher shop and um, seeing again the image of the self and the image of I think again the kind of various iconoclast Americans be they Humphrey Bogart to use that term again iconoclast that Jordan used earlier and the way that one sees themselves represented the way that one sees themselves in media the way that one sees themselves as larger than life. That will guide us through Christopher's whole journey. again, mm. um it's so beautifully rendered. Um so I just want to put a pin in that for now because i'm I'm certain we'll come back to it.
0: Yes, Jordan.
2: yeah, so so on on uncle jr and and Christopher, who I agree are amazing, amazing characters, obviously, uh, and and they have such a such a presence so early in the show. Um, I again see them through how Tony must see them. Because he does want to be so respectful and so reverent of what has come before, and Junior is that in total, right? He's mm-hmm. everything that is before. He uh, totally encapsulates all that is the tradition that is there. And we're we're kind of looking at how well how are the old timers doing in this show? You know, not not too good. They're they're pretty cranky. They're pretty grumpy. Uh, I think they are very bitter about their lack of power or how their empire has shrunken over time. And I think Tony's looking to preserve as much of what is left as possible. And then Tony's looking at what's coming up next. Who's coming around the corner? What mm. are these new kids like? And Chris and, oh God, Brendan, I mean, you know, he he sees what's coming. And I think he sees what he has to do to maintain a sense of legacy beyond himself. And I think Chris's incompetence is one of the greatest threats to Tony's uh, character, to, to what he sees... His his legacy is going to be legacy is so important to Tony because again he's he's mired in nostalgia he wants people after him to think about the things he did and think he was a great man he wants to be sainted like his father is sainted uh, he mm. wants the memory of him to be bigger than the man that he is and I think Chris is a tremendous threat to that because he can seek to he seeks to undermine essentially the whole operation he's a a hothead a loose cannon and yeah we see him vaingloriously posing in the butcher store. I think very telling that we're in a butcher store there. It's it's the the lowest form of of the kill. It is just, oh, just butchery. Well, yeah.
0: uh, and, and to 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 further illustrate your point, and I know they don't go too into it in this episode, but uh, over the course of the season and certainly the series, we get more information on this. But as far as like that sainthood that Tony's looking for and that he hopes to kind of embody for Christopher uh Chris, Tony was uh, Dicky Moltisanti who was Christopher's dad is very much a hero figure for Tony this legendary gangster the great Dicky Moltisanti who we never meet uh, was kind of like what Tony wants to be to Christopher, except that we, as the audience, have the outside perspective to know that Chris is not nearly as competent or self-aware, perhaps, as Tony Tony is. Tony is kind of cursed by his own wisdom and intelligence uh, because he's able to kind of see the larger picture in a way that a lot of the characters around him don't to his, to his own uh, advantage and detriment at times. I want to talk about... Uh, Quickly, there's a lot of firsts in this episode uh, that kind of become staples in the in the show overall. Uh, Tony's malapropisms, uh, which are, and malaprops in general, just kind of throughout the show. Uh, I really love the scene where he's with Carmela and she's just so happy that uh, he's in therapy and he says, "Geez, you think I was Hannibal Lecture before?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's kind of the first. And I think uh, in a show, uh, David Chase um, once said. Um, the first lie ever in The Sopranos is in this episode. David Chase once said that um, one of the hardest things about writing The Sopranos is that the characters are lying 90% of the time. <laughs> you know, there's so little truth spoken in this show. And I think like uh, the first lie, I, I actually kind of tracked it, the first time a lie, an outright falsehood is spoken is when Tony tells Melfi, nothing, we had coffee just totally lying about it. And then we see what happened. He goes and beats the shit out of Mahaffey in a co- darkly comic scene um, that kind of kicks off that whole storyline.
2: It has occurred to me before that maybe some of Tony's malapropisms might be intentional. I get this from my own father who uh, does this on purpose. Uh, he has never referred to John Travolta by his proper name. He only ever calls him John Revolta. I used to correct him a lot when I was a kid, and then I realized he was doing it on purpose. And because I have like I'm the first member of my family to you know graduate college and go on beyond that and all that stuff, um, I think I wouldn't call it resentment, but one of the things my dad loves to do is to make fun of me for that—the uh, fact that I'm always reading, the fact that I'm interested in a lot of scholarly pursuits—and he will go out of his way to either mispronounce actors' names or movie titles or new technology and things like that. And I I wonder if there's some kind of uh, I'll put it out to you guys. Do you think there's a kind of a pride a little bit in the Italian-American culture of seeming to be not academic? <laughs> not not unintelligent. Well, I just mean, like kind of taking kind of taking the piss out of some of those higher academic references or cultural references. Like Hannibal Lecture is, is a case in <laughs> point one. My dad would definitely say something like that. Absolutely. I, you know,
0: whether they're intentional or not, I definitely don't want to get too... I don't want to get into politics, but I think you can just kind of look around and see how we as Americans in general kind of, uh, prefer, um,
1: the stupid and the charming above the, the intellectual. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, well, and also at some point without getting ahead of ourselves, um, to, to utilize Jordan's point, um, Mm. about say pursuing academia in college, um, Meadow Soprano will likely be the first person in the Soprano clan to come to that point. And when she starts talking in academic language, it's really funny. Mm. And then various characters taking the piss, as Jordan says, with her is also really funny. And I think at that level, they are absolutely doing it deliberately. Um, There's something to that, for sure. And there's something to Tony's specific attitude in the way that he... Um, takes the piss, as you say, and the way in which he is smart, even though he's not educated, um, mm. in the traditional sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, he did have a semester and a half of college, but uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, I want to kind of start bringing this uh, full circle here and kind of bring it bring bring things to a little bit of a close. Uh, I'll get like any kind of last thoughts or any lingering themes or elements of this episode you guys want to discuss. But let me just throw this out there as kind of a fun question: uh, If you let, let's try to erase. The subsequent eighty-five episodes from our minds. If you had to just work off of this episode, you're walking away. You just saw it for the first time. Wow, I'm hooked. The Sopranos is great. Who's your favorite character walking away from episode one? Who, what, 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 what grabs you the most about this episode? Whether it's a person or a scene, uh, I have. I'm waffling between two answers, but I'm curious what you guys have to say.
1: Consulting my notes. <laughs> it's a tough one because I think there are a lot of really great examples as we say about what begins and um, various storylines and characters. But I think as, as I think Chase said, the moment when the show leaves the other shows, the network shows in the dust is the moment at the end with uh, Chris and Tony Mm. Um, Chris um, levies essentially a threat to say that he'll go to Hollywood with his various stories. And instead of a different approach, uh, More traditional hero approach. Tony goes off on him. He
0: And that was a James Gandolfini choice, by the way. I think the the story goes that it's written in the script that he just like kind of laughs and gives him like a little face slap a la Paulie kind of in Goodfellas. But James, but the story goes that Jim Gandolfini just like rips him out of the chair
1: and everyone was like, whoa. I mean that's such a that's great too because I think to me the show in spite of everything that we what the deep dive so far has focused on is the writing and the development of these characters. This show has always and always will owe a deep debt to Gandolfini and the way he humanized this character mm. and made it so rich and so specific.
2: So th- there's a scene, of course, where where Tony is dropping off a CD player to his mother, oh. and um. I, I know it's a weird choice. I think it's actually my favorite scene in the episode. I um, no,
0: Dude, dude I, you say it's weird, but I actually agree with you. I think if I had to pick one standout scene, this would be it because my two are Tony and Livia.
2: Yeah. um, You know, it's it's really peculiar. You, you've you just asked me to ignore all the episodes that come after that. So I have to go just from my initial impression of their relationship in this one episode. And what a great question you've now made out of that. Um for me, and I think for a lot of people watching, it's deeply personal because the topic is brought up of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of sending like your elder uh, family member away to a retirement home and the deep resentment that is already there, um, mm. because they don't they don't want to go. They they want to to continue living at home. Uh, you know. I know the, the offer is ultimately made for Livia to come and stay in the the main Sopranos house, but she's still clinging on to the past. For her, she doesn't know what the viewer knows and what Tony knows, that, that her time as being an independent person who can live on her own is really coming to an end and that it's time to let go. And Tony, in his way, and I give him a lot of credit here, is actually trying to find a kind way to tell her Ma, it's it's okay to let go. Mm. You you gotta let go. And for anyone who's been in this position with an elder family member, it's so difficult. And he's brought her this CD player as a peace offering uh, that, of course, (laughs) she has no interest in and she sees right through.
0: I don't want it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
2: (laughs) And um, it was just riveting to me. And it was riveting to me in a way that even some of the mob scenes were not... I was more interested in what was going to happen to this woman and what was her future. And um, one of the things I was most interested in seeing in the next episode was where did that all end up? And right. why are things so tense between them? Because the scene noted notably goes a little bit beyond typical mother-son annoyance. There's a lot of something in that room. There's a shape between them, and we, we don't quite know it yet, and it generates a lot of intrigue.
0: Wow. Perfectly said. I don't know if I have much to add to that. I will say on the subject of Livia, I mean, what her relationship with Tony is going to be the central conceit of subsequent episodes and uh, a great deal of this show. Um, But for me, I know Livia Soprano has ruined Mesquite. Uh, because anytime I'm at somebody's house and some, anytime somebody says the word mesquite, I it's like an impulse. I have to say, you're using mesquite. It makes the sausage taste peculiar. It's, it's such a fucking great line. Um, so yeah, uh, just kind of bringing this uh, into a close then, guys. I think this was an awesome discussion. Um, the episode ends uh, with, uh, you know, Tony blows up Artie's restaurant, just hitting on these plot points. Uh, he kind of pulls Christopher in. Um, Junior and Livia are kind of the specters that are looming over this birthday party. What could be bad? Cut to Livia and Junior in the car. That amazing, hilarious mm-hmm. conversation. Um, I love the line of cars behind Junior beeping at him as he's driving. <laughs> just, there's that scene is funny on so many levels. By the could way, really how quick? many conversations? Yeah,
2: how many conversations must Livia and Junior have had like that in the past in the car oh, by God. themselves together? <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I wanted to say really quickly, because recently, uh, a few minutes ago, Chris, you mentioned about there's so many lies. And perhaps the first one is when he says that he and Mahaffey had coffee. Yeah. I just want to briefly mention that the way that that lie is then treated and exposed is we see it cuts to the flashback and the coffee hits the ground mm. and spills and the car takes off after Mahaffey. I just wanted to put a pin in that quality of humor and playfulness and even dark comedy or theater of the absurd because, again, I think that will characterize this entire show and as much as other shows have taken from The Sopranos and taken cues from it, I don't think any show before or since has quite hit on that quality of drama as well as the playfulness and the fun of The Sopranos. Yeah. um, That's just my view of it. So,
0: I mean, David Chase has a great sense of humor. Some of the funniest episodes... Uh, are the ones he's written. I mean, he wrote and directed this. This pilot was his baby. No one thought this was going to take off. He thought the networks were going to say absolutely not to you out of your mind and then he would turn this into a 90 minute, 2 hour movie. But uh, you know, the rest is history. Jordan, any final thoughts on this episode before we uh put it in the put it in the can? Just that I think watching
2: this first episode after all these years because we we recently rewatched it, um I'm surprised that it was still so um it was still so gripping. Uh, the characters yes. were still so present. There was nothing that seemed dated to me at all about this. Um, it, it was just very natural, very intriguing. It, it did everything a pilot is supposed to do, And it actually reignited my interest watching it again all these years later. So it's actually just become wonderful to have The Sopranos back in my life and be able to talk about it again.
0: Well, I'm excited to take this journey with you guys. This is great. This is like a way to kind of refresh the journey. I always wish I could wipe my mind and watch The Sopranos with a blank slate. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is kind of like the next best thing, just kind of really diving into it. I love uh, some of the stuff you guys are saying. I think we're on the right track. I can't wait to get into the next episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in. This has been The Sopranos Podcast. I'm Chris D'Amato, Paul Mancini, and Jordan Hugh. And we'll see you for 46 long.